What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. It can feel increasingly easy to find vivid and devastating snapshots of the effects of violence on our world from mass shootings to what we now casually call fire season in California from the dwindling of abortion rights to seemingly never-ending statistics about crime and stories or images of the violent impact of mass incarceration. That violence can feel deafening. Our guest today has been a political activist, but his latest effort is about finding space to articulate both how he sees the world around him and reimagines how the world could look without those never-ending streams of violence. Christopher Soto is a Salvadoran poet based in Los Angeles who works with UCLA's Ethnic Studies Research Center. He's also a co-founder of the Undocu Poets campaign, which successfully lobbied numerous poetry publishers around the country to remove proof of citizenship requirements from first book contracts. Christopher has just released a brand new poetry book called Diaries of a Terrorist. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your new poetry collection addresses a spectrum that weaves together stories of police violence, the AIDS epidemic, abuse, borders, immigration and customs enforcement, abolition, and more. It <laughs> packs a serious punch. Yes. We're going to have the opportunity to hear you share a few poems. But first, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of poetry as someone who is politically focused and has done a lot of uh, political activism work and how you use poetry to both reflect back what you see and also imagine a world that's different. Yeah, so in the context of the abolitionist movement, I really think about poetry in two prongs. The first is I think of poets as the daydreamers, the wanderers. We don't really have very many questions, but we have uh, we don't have very many answers, but we have a lot of questions. And so when I think about what the poet does in the abolitionist movement is we get to create worlds as we wish they would exist. We get to use our imagination and not be tied to legal strategy or legislation. And we get to just say, this is the world that I want to live in. So I think that's one of, one of the ways that poetry and abolition intersect. And the other way I think about it is Poets have an obsession with language. You know, I spent so long just debating the punctuation and the line breaks and how I wanted, you know, the breath of my poems to flow. Each, each word in this book is so meticulously thought through. And what that obsession with language and with breath does when it encounters the realm of policing or conversations around the possible abolition of police is it allows the poet to look at language and say, is this the most accurate description? Is this word being used the most accurate description of what's actually happening here in front of me? So I think about incarceration. Is that the word that is most powerful to use or accurate to use? Uh, to describe what's happening, or should we say human caging? I think about words like arrest. 
and how people are being unwillfully extracted from their social and economic lives. And I don't know if arrest is the right word. I think kidnapping might be more accurate to describe what I see when I see my community members being taken off the streets unexpectedly by people that they don't know. Um, and so those, those two prongs are ways that I think about the intersection of poetry and abolition. I have your book, Diaries of a Terrorist, in my hand right now, and you talked a little bit about how intentional you were with the layouts, the formatting, the punctuation, etc. in your book. And I want to point to, just before I even got to that, I saw the front cover, um, and it drew me in really powerfully. And for our listeners who can't see it right now, the front cover of the book is vivid in color and in statement. There's a black person in bright orange and blue floral dress with a yellow slip and black boots climbing a ladder to apparently see over a tall beige wall or maybe to climb onto a roof. There's tufts of greenery in one corner and the sky is vivid blue with fluffy clouds. We can't see what the person on the cover might be able to see beyond the wall that they're climbing over. But from the image, I really empathize with wanting to see what's on the, on the other side. And I imagine it to be something beautiful. I'm wondering, Christopher, can you talk about the cover and what's on the other side of that wall? Yeah, so that cover image was taken by Fabian Guerrero, who is a queer Latino photographer that was based out of LA. And the image is named Ton, T-O-N. And it was uh, taken in Mexico City. And I love that image in part because of the movement of the person on the ladder. We don't know if they're climbing down to escape. We don't know if they're climbing up to peer over the wall. We don't know if on the other wall is a garden or if on the other wall is any array of interactions. It's an image that feels very full of life to me and also very full of possibilities. And I was thinking about how the image was going to interact with the title because the title is Diaries of a Terrorist. And one of my first inclinations was to have something more directly related to policing as the cover image for the book. But I spoke with other poet friends and we talked about the poetic leap and trusting readers to jump from image to text or from various lines or various stanzas that might seem discordant. And I think that's kind of what you have here in this cover image is that you have such a mm, ferocious and political title with such a soft cover image. And I think maybe what ties them together is both of them kind of feel like a questioning of, wait, is this, is this person in the floral dress the terrorist? Like, what is the terrorist's life? Like, this, this person looks like my family, my friends, like someone I want to have at, at dinner. So I have to ask, because you introduced it, why, why the title, Diaries of a Terrorist? It's interesting because it almost feels like a subconscious conversation that was being had with other 
artists of color and queer artists of color in Los Angeles, I think about the painter Joey Terrell, who lives in Los Angeles and was producing these zines in, I believe, the 1980s called Homeboy Beautiful. And one of those zines was called East LA Terrorism. And then I think about a few years ago, Patrice Calor's book, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, who released a book called When They Call You a Terrorist. And then my book, without consciously being in conversation, had reiterated that word terrorist. And I think it's a recurring feeling that queer communities of color in Los Angeles have been grappling with being targeted by the police state. You know, Los Angeles incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else in the United States. And the United States incarcerates Mm. more people per capita than anywhere else in the world. Mm. And so we're a very hyper-policed society and city in Los Angeles. And queer and trans communities of color are some of those communities that are most directly impacted by policing as an eliminatory project. So I think in a sense, that word terrorist came to me almost subconsciously or spiritually. But I also think about that word within the context of a post 9-11 world, where you have so many Muslim and Middle Eastern communities that are labeled as terrorist. I think about it in relationship to Black Lives Matter movement and how many Black leaders speaking against brutality, police brutality, have been called terrorists. I think about, you know, migrant families who are detained and the chance of build that wall, build that wall, because we're viewed as some iteration of terrorist coming into the country. And so I think that whether it's explicitly said or not, in so many ways, legislatively and socially, to be non-white in this particular moment is to render one a terrorist. So we've talked a lot about what the book looks like and the concept of it. I'm wondering if we can dive in and, and share one of the pieces from it. I'll start with this poem that I wrote for Orlando after the shooting at Pulse. It's called, All the Dead Boys Look Like Us. Last time we saw ourselves die was when police killed Jesse Hernandez, a 17-year-old brown queer who was sleeping in their car. Yesterday we saw ourselves die again. 15 times we died in Orlando. And we remembered reading Dr. Jose Esteban Munoz before he passed. We were studying at NYU where he was teaching, where he wrote shit that made us feel that queer brown survival was possible, but he didn't survive. And now on the dance floor in the restroom on the news in our chest, there are another 50 bodies that look like ours and are dead. We've been marching for black lives and talking about police brutality against native communities too, for years now. But this morning, we feel it. We really feel it again. How can we imagine ourselves today, black, native, brown people? How can we imagine ourselves when all the dead boys look like us? 
Once we asked our nephew where he wanted to go to college, what career he wants, as if the whole world was his for the choosing. Once he answered without fearing tombstones or cages or the hands from a father, the hands of our lover yesterday, praised our whole body, made angels from our lips. Ave Maria, full of grace. He propped us up like the roof of a cathedral in New York City. Before we opened the news and read and read about people who think two brown queers can't build cathedrals, only cemeteries. And each time we kissed, a funeral plot opened. In the bedroom, we accepted his kiss and we lost our reflection. We're tired of writing this poem, but we wanted to say one last word about yesterday. Our father called. We heard him cry for only the second time in our life. He sounded like he loves us. It's something we're rarely able to hear. And we hope, if anything, his sounds what our body remembers first. That poem was All the Dead Boys Look Like Us for Orlando from Christopher Soto's Diaries of a Terrorist. One of the lines you wrote there is that we are tired of writing this poem. I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about your trajectory as a poet, how you started writing, and what makes you tired of writing this poem. Um, How many times have you written this poem? Yeah, so as an individual, I started writing poetry in first grade, actually, because uh, in case you're listening, Miss Vice, <laughs> because of you. Um, and thanks so much to all our elementary school teachers. It really, it really did start that early for me. Um, she would teach me cursive. She would teach me poetry. And we would read poetry. And so I started writing at a very early age. And then by the time that I got to high school, I had another teacher. Um, so here's a shout out to our, our high school teachers as well, Miss um, Emshoff. And uh, she told me about like a youth publishing competition and she taught me how to submit my work and I had submitted my poems and they were accepted in like a a youth poetry publication in high school. Then by the time that I got to college and eventually my my undergrad and and into my graduate degree, you know, the writing just continued. It was, it's been an obsession my whole life. I don't think I know how to do anything else. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the second prong of that question is about being tired in relationship to writing that poem. And within that poem, the context is, is of, you know, witnessing police brutality against individuals, queer brown individuals like Jesse Hernandez, and also understanding that mass shootings, like what happened at the Pulse nightclub, is an instance where the police do not prevent mass violence and the police also do not respond to mass violence. And so it's one of just wishing that we had better responses, better solution and more resources so that our community could heal from instances like this that continue to happen over and over again. When I think about the carceral history, particularly of Los Angeles, where I live, and the iterations of uprisings that we've had, 
in that city. There have been, in the 1960s, the 1990s, 2020s, there have been three uprisings against police brutality within the city of Los Angeles. And I think we're, we're, we're at a moment where we're finally saying enough is enough. No more reforms, no more body cameras, no more diversifying the police force. We're ready for abolition. Abolition is a really consistent theme in your book. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your own personal experiences with police and prisons have impacted your writing. Yeah, so I've been identifying as an abolitionist for about 10 years now. And at first, I thought it was a really ludicrous idea, but I was dating someone who was an abolitionist and slowly continued to be introduced to more text and more individuals who helped me learn what the movement was about. And at that time, as I was reading abolitionist text, I began to really think about my own personal histories as a survivor of domestic violence and how that intersected with policing. I think that at large in 2020 and throughout the protests that had happened related to the murder of George Floyd, abolition became part of the lexicon of the American public and people were able to start having conversations around what is thought of as nonviolent public health or public safety issues. So, for example, people started to say things such as, well, we can defund the police because we understand that maybe police aren't best equipped to respond to issues related to housing or mental health. But I think that within within the public, the mass public, folks are still working to distribute language or understand what abolishing the police might mean context of things that are thought of as indefinitely are uh, violent, whether that's sexual assault, domestic violence, or homicide. And in my case, going through domestic violence, I think about what I actually needed in those years. I needed access to safe housing near my school. I needed access to food. I needed access to mental health services. What I didn't need was for my father to be incarcerated. Mm. If my father would have been incarcerated, that would have disrupted the economic unit of my family, which would have meant that who knows if my mother, my sister, and I would have had access to housing and other resources that we need while this person who was perpetrating violence, particularly against me, was incarcerated. And so for me, abolition is actually a process of saying our current system or systems are not responding to the needs of survivors and that we must think outside of policing if we're actually interested in keeping our communities safe. So that leads me to my next question, which I I like to ask this question sometimes to anyone, but particularly to abolitionists, because so often the conversation is about trying to get ourselves out from under 
something as powerful as the prison industrial complex. But in the basic and brass tacks of it, an abolitionist world is about creating something where we can deal with harm in ways that aren't violent in and of themselves. You kind of alluded to it in in how you described uh, just a few minutes ago, but I'm wondering in situations where you yourself feel unsafe or feel scared or in situations where you've been harmed, what are some things that you think about that could address those issues in abolitionist ways? And obviously your book talks about many different kinds of harm. So this question is for whatever comes to mind. Yeah, so there are violence intervention teams and programs. I think about, uh, I believe it's called KIT 911, that help people escape an emergency situation. So I think about precarious incidents where I have been in. And a lot of the times it has been, I do not want to be in this particular instance, but that doesn't also mean that I want the other person incarcerated. What I want is to get home safely. And so I do think that we need to invest in ways to make sure that people get home safely if that's where they want to and need to go. But there are a whole host of programs and ways that the community has worked outside of policing to support survivors and to provide public safety that are just completely underfunded. And so it's hard for people to know about non-carceral violence intervention teams when a lot of the times they don't have the support of state funding politicians or they don't have the type of community usage that the police do. So it takes a lot it takes a lot for people to reimagine their their responses when they're in need. We're speaking with Christopher Soto. Could you share another poem with us? Yeah. So this poem is called We've Been Yearning for a Riot at the Los Angeles Zoo. The cobras unlocked their jaws into safety pins, picked open the locks of their terrariums and escaped. The penguins threw student loans at women with Prada purses. So upset, the thought of happiness existing anywhere seemed insulting. The albino rhinoceros battered open the cage, the, the gates of his captivity. How he dreamt of a road trip and camping in Yosemite. To walk in the valley and let waterfalls empty their bladders into his mouth. The ram rammed open the gates of his enclosure too. The apricot parrot sang the same song of struggle. Anti-capitalism means the rich can no longer control us with their laws. This whole f***ing zoo bursted like a Molotov cocktail when the parrot set flame to the aviary. And then a fly flew on the spine of a gazelle. A gazelle who was lighting a blunt while resting her hip against the ice cream truck and... The alligators started to pour margaritas. Alligators used to be enemies with the gazelle, but now they're together. They hijacked the stereo and started dancing to La Bala by Los Hermanos Flores. The pigs, the most anxious of animals, stayed locked inside, clutching their badges, hiding in the mud, and waiting for the uproar to pass. Then came the wisp of tranquilizer darts, 
Humans push giraffes whose necks craned into the shape of a McDonald's arch, and we couldn't fold back to cornmeals from the trough. We dashed to freedom. Our cheetah crop top turned us into a cheetah. Our legs were pixelated in quick motion. Catch us if you can. That's the voice of Christopher Soto. Uh, Christopher, one thing that was brought up particularly at the end of that piece and that you have throughout your book is the plural use of pronouns. You use we and us a lot. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your choice to use we. Yeah, so the we pronoun is basically used exclusively throughout the book. And the reason was that I wanted to push against American individualism and exceptionalism and this idea that my experiences with police are solitary. I wanted to say that it's actually not just happening to one person, but it's happening to whole communities. Um, police violence and mistrust. And so I used the we pronoun in a sense to build a chorus and to stand in line with my chorus of other survivors and other abolitionists who are saying that policing is not a system that protects them. And so that's why I decided that the I in relationship to this issue does not suffice. That's Christopher Soto, author of the new book of poems, Diaries of a Terrorist. Thank you so much for joining us, Christopher. Thank you for having me. You can follow his work on Christopher's website at ChristopherSoto-Poet.com and we'll have links to his website and his social media on our website at kpfa.org. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>